Blog Talk Radio. Is there an unholy alliance between big business and politicians to drain money from the middle class? Are corporations really willing to give up their loopholes in favor of a fair tax system? Well, we tackle these questions and more today with Dylan Radigan and representatives of the Rake Coalition on Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in California. I'm co-hosting with my friend and colleague, Chuck Morse in Boston. We're broadcasting Monday through Friday at 1 p.m. on CyberStation USA Network, the Blog Talk Radio Network, and our radio affiliates. It's February 1st, 2012, and we are pushing the boundaries of radio, listening to voices from all sides of the issues of the day. Well, our radio um, uh, affiliates are in a, um, uh, in a news break right now, so I'm going to introduce you to my um, friend and colleague, our co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Patrick. How are you? I'm good. I uh, uh, j- just made it right on time there. <laughs> yep, yep. Got a lot going on here today. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, before we, we get into the show, I, I want to correct uh, myself uh, um, the conversation we had yesterday when you asked about Buddhism and b- abortion. And uh, hmm. Buddhism does hold uh, that uh, all life is sacred and forbids taking it. And many, but not all, Buddhist sects actually believe that life begins at conception. And um, uh, some, but not all, Buddhist sects actually believe that abortion leads to bad karma, that is, problems in later lives, as you pointed out. Tibetan Buddhism is probably the strictest. It forbids abortion. Although the head of Tibetan Buddhism, the Dalai Lama, has said that abortion is karmically negative, but it should be approved or disapproved in accordance with each circumstance. And he's written that women who have had abortions should be treated with compassion and uh, they can improve their karmic outcomes with good deeds. Uh, The Theravada Buddhists um, are mixed. In Thailand, uh, the leaders are, are very split. Some attach no negativity to abortion. Others call it murder and attach great negative karma to it. Abortion is illegal in Thailand but widespread, and Buddhist leaders oppose legalizing it except in rape or incense. In Burma, the same situation, but uh, it's uh, equally widespread. In Sri Lanka, it's viewed negative, but it's not forbidden. In Japan, Zen Buddhists are quite tolerant of abortion. They recognize it as killing, but they attach no negative karma to it. And Buddhist women hold ceremonies for their fetuses after abortions. In the United States, um, all forms of Buddhism, Theravada, Hinayana, Zen, and others, generally do not really delineate absolute rules about abortion. Um, one of the leaders in the U.S., Lama Suye Da, says that each situation must be taken separately. Another leader, Karma Latish Somo, recognizes that there is incongruity between ethical theory and practice and advocates understanding and compassion for women who feel they must abort. Neither of them absolutely forbid abortion. So it, it, it's, uh, I was wrong when I said that they, it's, it's, uh, Buddhism doesn't have a stand on it. It has lots of stands on it. Well, Patrick, first of all, I think everyone feels that women who've had abortions need to be treated with compassion. I have never heard anyone suggest otherwise. But um, I don't know. I'm, I'm having trouble even discussing the issue with you because you've said that you refuse to to uh, discuss what you think of abortion as a moral issue. Apparently it's just something that you don't want to discuss. And, um, yeah, I have a big problem with that. Um, it's not a personal question. This is a public policy question. This is a radio talk show, ho- ho- and I'm also 
in a sense, a journalist. And if I ever said to a journalist, I don't discuss something, believe me, they wouldn't let it go. You know, either <laughs> they would. be right. And it kind of breaches basic talk radio uh, ethics. You know, it's not like I'm asking you a personal question. I'm asking you to talk about something that you've constantly talked about since I've known you, which is abortion. And for you to come up and say, oh, well, I'm not going to answer this. I don't want to talk about this. I mean, I don't know what to do with that. Well, I know you don't. Um, uh, When you ask about... um, Well, I do know what what I'm going to do with it. But, but, you know, I just uh, it puts me in a in a situation where it's kind of a wall has gone up, and I'm not going to ignore it. <laughs> okay. Well, when you asked specifically, I said I didn't want to discuss morals, not uh, and in this context, morals and abortion. Um, when you talk about uh, discussing morals, uh, morals, just as, as I've just described, change from place to place, time to time, and culture to culture. It's it's extremely moral uh, for a 12-year-old girl to be married off by her parents in India. It's not moral here. It's extre- and, and I could come up with many other citations. So when you ask about morals, you have to, I have to ask, well, whose morals, what morals, and in what context? It, it's not just a simple, this is what I believe and what I don't believe uh, question. I have to ask about the context. And uh, you, uh, you Well, want Patrick, to- I, I, made clear, I made clear the context. The context was what was your moral feeling about it. I wasn't asking about India's moral feeling. And by the way, the the Buddhists, uh, the preponderance of opinion is that they're just as against abortion as as uh, most uh, Christians are, to varying degrees. To varying degrees. But my question was, places. we have to. And I, that's right. In various places. But my I question was, what States was your moral position? There is a strong uh, a position uh, by uh, Buddhist leaders on abortion. And, and I hear the music, and we have to take a break. For our Blog Talk listeners, we have to take a quick break while we bring in our radio audiences. Uh, Lars is going to run up to the room and move the satellite dishes around. Don't forget, you can be part of this conversation. You can call us at 424. Listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. And again, if you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424 424- Six seven five six eight zero six is the number to call, and you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail dot com. And now I'll send it back to our host Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, thank you, Lars. And as I was saying, you can call us at four two four six seven five sixty eight zero six, or you can email us at fairdoc at gmail dot com. And I am Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm welcoming our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon. I'm co-hosting today's edition of the Fairness Doctrine from Los Angeles with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston. And I want you to join us, as I said, by email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And um, we're also up on uh, Facebook and Twitter. You can follow our feeds there, some interesting stuff there, and also on our website, fairnessradio.com. Well, Chuck, uh, I'm going to give you a definitive answer because I know you're looking for a definitive answer. Um, I don't take a moral position on abortion. I think that the woman is the only person who can decide whether it's moral or not. To me, the uh, the position I take is that under our Constitution, everybody should be free to manage their self and their body the way they want to, and, it, and uh, the only moral question to me is, are we allowing the freedom guaranteed under our Constitution? 
And if we don't allow that freedom, I think that's immoral. But if there's further moral questions, that's up to the woman involved. Patrick, I asked you a very specific question, and it was, what did you think of, in general, elective abortion personally? What you think of it in terms of its morality? And I gave an example being, let's say a woman is pregnant. And by the way, late-term abortion is not legal, so we don't. Let's not go late-term, but mid-term abortion. She decides, you know, I don't feel that I want to have a baby. Maybe I, you know, I, I want to do something else. I want to get a job. So I'm going to have an abortion. Now, my question to you was simply, do you think that is a moral decision or not? I reject the question. Uh, Women don't operate that way. They don't just decide, I don't want to have this baby. They go through, as we were told by Merrill Hoffman, who has held the hands of thousands of women who've had abortions, they go through deep thought anguish and pain to make that decision they just don't decide to go have a a uh, an abortion so i i reject the scenario that you're giving me well patrick that's actually not true you're you're generalizing here there are situations where a woman can simply decide you know i'm not going to have the baby i know of two personally uh so you're not you know you can't you can't just generalize and say oh that a woman is going to go through a lot of anguish and whatnot that, that may be true that may not be true I'm asking you specifically about a situation where that is not the case, and well, those uh, are those do exist. Uh, do you know what went on inside their minds before they made that decision? I know that they did it in a very short time, and they were they just were, were done with it, and they didn't have any particular moral compunction, at least not that I know of. And I know two people personally um, who did it, do, in fact, did it several times. And um, they, according to what they told me or what I've been able to discern, they didn't have any particular anguish about it, any particular moral feeling one way or the other about it. In fact, they thought it was good. Then that's the moral decision that they made. And they're entitled to make that moral decision. Yeah, but my question to you is what do you think of that? Do you think that's moral or immoral? I I know it's their decision to make, but we're not disputing that. I, I think that the question is irrelevant. It's constitutional and it's legal. They make the moral decision. I don't. And my, of course, it's it's legal. That's like saying, and I love this. I mean, that's like when you when you argue with someone and they say, well, someone has a right to speak, and I respect that right. Yeah, but we're talking about what they said, not that the fact they have a right to speak. We know they have a right to do it. My question is, what do you think of that decision? I, I think uh, given that they exercised the, given the their situ- freedom under the Constitution, and I'm glad they did. We got that, Patrick, but you haven't answered the question. I'm Are not you glad that they I'm, did. I'm rejecting your question. I'm telling you that it's not my my decision. It's their decision. Well, then, Patrick, what you're saying here is that you're not going to state your moral opinion on something. And I, I think that, that I have a big... No, you haven't. What you said, it's their moral opinion, and I accept whatever their moral opinion is. You haven't said what your moral opinion is. I have so. My, my moral opinion is we live under a constitution that provides freedom to people, and, it, and if people make it, it's the, my moral decision is that we give people the freedom to make their decisions about their bodies and their future. And if we don't give them that, that's immoral. We gave them that, it's, it's moral. Now, how they do it, that's up to them, and they have their own internal morals to deal with. Well, you're answering a different question, Patrick. I'm not asking you whether or not you think legal abortion is moral. I'm asking you whether or not you think abortion itself 
in these conditions as a legal entity is moral or not. I'm not. Uh, we're not talking here about about choice. We're talking about the choice being made. What we're you know what I'm saying? In other words, I mean, what we're getting it's at perfectly here is legal for someone to drink heavily too. Uh, to me, you know, the, it's, only, it's, the, the, the only morality is whether or not you give people the choice they're guaranteed in the Constitution. Well, that's not the morality we're talking about. I'm not, that, that's a whole different subject. We're talking apples and oranges. I understand that. I'm asking you what you think about the morality of people who have abortions under the conditions I've mentioned. I'm not talking about whether or not they have the right to. They, have, they can legally do it. We, we understand that. There's a lot of things people can legally do that may not be moral. My question to you is what do you think about the morality of it, not whether think, or not it should be legal. And I've, I've answered it several times. I think it's entirely moral no, you haven't. to be able to make that decision. We know that, but you haven't answered it, Patrick, and you're obviously not going to answer it. And I'm going to see, and I'm, going to, I'm not going to let this go. We're going to see what other moral positions you take on, legal, on things that are perfectly legal. You know, the idea that somebody, there's a lot of things people do that are perfectly legal that are immoral. We can talk about uh, spending $5 billion on a political campaign. There may be some morality to that. But, of course, you can't talk about that because apparently it's legal and it's constitutional. So I guess you can't comment on that, right? You can't comment on Citizens United because, after all, the Constitution has been ruled upon by a Supreme Court. So you can't take a moral position on that either, right? Uh, I don't take moral positions on that. I take outcome positions. They're bad for the country. No, you take a position that it's wrong. You haven't, you haven't said it's bad for the country. You think it's wrong for politicians to use their money to buy influence in politics, even though it's legal. You, don't, well, you haven't just said it's bad for the country. Well, you could, we could point to situations where you'd say it was good for the country. You just have generally taken the position that it's not ethical, that it's wrong. I take that's a, a moral that leads stand. To a bad outcome for the country, and therefore we shouldn't be doing. It's bad for America. It's neither right nor wrong. It's bad for America. All right, Patrick. If this is the position you're going to take, then it does change the dynamic of our conversation. Because if you do take moral positions against something that is legal and constitutional, I'm going to ask you about that. Since you seem to not not be interested in doing that, it's only what is good or what's bad for the country, apparently. That's true. Do you think it's good for the country that, that uh, three million women have abortions every year? Is that good or bad for the country? It's, yes, I think it's, it's good that they have the freedom to do that. That, get, that, that but ensures do you think that it's women good have that all the freedom it. that they need to become the people they want to be. Now, whether or not it's moral, that's up to them. And now, we're going to have to take a break now because we okay. have a guest coming on. And we'll come so back to it afterwards. And when we come back... Dylan Radigan is going to be with us and is about his new book, Reedy Bastard. Stay tuned. For our Blog Talk listeners, we're taking a quick break here while we acquire our guest. Our producer is busy making phone calls, watching uh, uh, lights light up on uh, boards, etc. And we're going to be talking about... Um, where the, the uh, U.S. economy is and where it's going and how it got there and uh, on and on. This will be an interesting conversation. Dylan Radigan, of course, is an MSNBC uh, uh, anchor and spent 13 years as the uh, global managing uh, editor for corporate finance with Bloomberg News. So he knows from whence he talks. 
And we'll make sure that you all have uh, have an opportunity to join in the conversation. You can reach Sometimes it's difficult to reach people like like Bill and running So it may take a minute or so. Uh, our producer will uh, let us know. Uh, we uh, have numerous phone numbers to reach them at. In the meantime, let me uh, give you a heads up on uh, what's coming up this week. Uh, tomorrow, Peter Stephen and his book, uh, The Next Nightmare, followed by Rob Boston. Rob is with uh, American United for Church and State, and he's going to talk about so-called war on religion. We hear a lot about a war on religion, and uh, we also hear about the uh, war religion is uh, conducting against the very people in our society. So we're going to get all that straightened out, what's the what's reality. Uh, next week, coming up next week, um, Rounds and Mike Brown, the new topic of law will be with us, and that takes us to Parliament. Dave Johnson will also be on the schedule next week. So, it's a good week of taking up to let you know more about it. Chris Phillips is going to start off on Monday's book. Meantime, we now calling Dylan Radigan. He's actually traveling to Radigan. Here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email anytime of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. Well, Mitt Romney's candidacy has highlighted the role of money and corporations in our political and economic system, for better or for worse. But predictably, what could be a fruitful and necessary conversation of that topic has become a partisan food fight with pseudo-facts and personal attacks smothering the real issues the nation confronts at the very time when that conversation is critical to our future. Dylan Radigan's new book, Greedy Bastards, brings the essential question back into focus. It's the right book at the right time to right the ship of American state. Dylan Radigan, welcome to Fairness Radio. It's a delight to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, Dylan, I've read the entire book, and I've 
filled it full of notes and scribbles, and I have two things to say. First of all, America, every American should read this book now. And secondly, I understand why nobody has ever accused you of excess subtlety. <laughs> uh, well, you know, my theme, our, our whole mission is ruthlessness mixed with compassion. Uh, and the basic premise being you, you will never solve what you do not have the courage or the wherewithal to understand. And you can't solve a problem you don't understand. Well put. I appreciate your praise, and I, and I, and I, and I hope that people uh, understand that my intention is to not simply point and lay blame for a given issue, as the book makes pretty clear. It is to demand that we as a collective, 311 million people, uh, muster the courage and resolve and compassion and ruthlessness necessary to actually uh, resolve the misaligned interests in our tax code, in our banking structure, in our health care system. These are systems we all depend on, we're all paying for. Uh, while there's a fantasy that you can simply either find the group of greedy bastards and fix it and or a fantasy that you can... <clears throat> come up with some magic pill that makes it all go away, those are both fantasies. In reality, we have to address the incredible opportunity before us and the incredible new problem-solving tools that are at our disposal, and at the same time uh, respond to the pressures of the post-industrial age that are very expensive and very inefficient in a way that is healthy for ourselves by resolving it as opposed to this culture of denial that is just really destructive. The, the way we solve problems in this country without question, currently, is our greatest national security risk. Well, I, I agree with you there. Uh, you, uh, you portray, in this book, you portray America as kind of a prone giant laying on the ground, covered with vampires, sucking its economic lifeblood, which is why you're not accused of being subtle. Uh, who are these vampires, and how did we get in this position? Uh, the vampire industries are very well-defined. You have the banking industry at the top, the trade pirates, then the health industries, uh, the energy industries, uh, and then, to a lesser extent, the educational dysfunction, and then uh, agribusiness, effectively, is the final sort of wing of that in communications. Um, we got into this mess for the simple reason that we're going through a massive transition from being an industrial era uh, country to a digital era country. And the businesses that are the most powerful in terms of uh, their legacy power from the industrial era are the ones that are most threatened by the uh, imminent transition in the capital markets, health, energy, education, etc. And it, we are in a situation where it's as if we are allowing the horse and buggy people from back in the day to pay off our government to alter policy structures to ensure that the automobile never arrives, except for in this case the automobile is not a car. It is a methodology of, of solving problems using discrete data, actually what people want, where they want it, how they want it, in a way that is vastly more efficient. We talk about it at length in the book with the hot spotting uh, of healthcare, and that is a model for problem solving for the 21st century that needs to be scaled pretty much across the board. Well, well, let's t take a look at, at, at some of these vampires. Um, uh, next week we have a reporter on who has been covering the education industry, and I was surprised in reading some of his material to see that the uh, the president of Fe University of Phoenix, uh, a national uh, online university that graduates about 43% of its students, made $6.4 million last year, whereas the president of Harvard, which graduates about 98% of its students, made maybe a tenth of that. 
Is this the kind of thing that you're talking about, this this, this rampant yeah, transfer no, that's, of wealth? Yeah, that's exactly it. it is, there's a study that recently came out that uh, shows that companies that spend a lot of money on lo- – basically, there's multiple variables. One, the length of time they spend lobbying Congress. How many years have you been doing it? Two, uh, how much money have you spent recently? And three, do you spend more than your industry competitors? And if you look at those three variables, you see significant outperformance in the stock market on a shareholder level from businesses that spend in excess on those companies, <coughs> which is the fund, the best canary in the coal mine to understand why Washington, D.C., where I am right now, is such a boom town as they are in the booming business of buying and selling our tax code, our bank policy, our trade policy to corrupt businesses that can't deal with a, a fair playing field. And in the process, while Washington booms, America suffers. Well, you portray in the in, in the book uh, an, an unholy alliance between government and business, and that unholy alliance is fueled by money, by um, future jobs, by influence, etc. Uh, all this is foundationed on the assumption by the Supreme Court that money is speech. Do you agree that money is speech? Uh, it's not I, to have an opinion on whether money is speech suggests that it's a matter of opinion. Um, money, quite clearly, by definition, is property. Money is a, a used as a representation of property, and it is exclusively usable as a, a way to acquire property. Just as corporations are a tool, that's obvious. Um, and the only reason we've gotten into the the delusion that money is speech is because of the the mechanism of communication with with cable and over-the-air broadcast television has figured out how to monetize the act of communicating. And the act of communicating has been conflated with speaking. And as a result, people believe that money is speech. But in fact, in a practical, real-world economy, money is property by definition and needs to be regulated and treated like you would any property. Uh, interesting uh, point of view on that. You described the uh, the evolution of of the Patient Protection and Healthcare Affordability Act, and you point out that it essentially was written not only by the insurance industry but by a, a former vice president of the insurance industry. While well the point. pardon me at well point at, at well point, and you um, while at the same time, um, the, particularly the Republican Party, but also some members of the Democratic Party we're uh, decrying it as being socialism. Now, as part of that process, uh, and I was involved a little bit in this process, the progressive wing of the Democratic Party demanded uh, that the uh, the Congress consider a single-payer, federally funded uh, universal health care. That debate was stopped dead in its tracks by Max Baucus, and, so, and he actually used ca- um, Capitol Police to remove people from a hearing who demanded that they have an opportunity to at least raise the issue. Um, that that didn't really make it through to the to Americans. They 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 uh, they didn't realize that what is being called socialism by the Republicans was actually written by the insurance companies. Is this an example of what's going on in this country of why we are in the situation of laying on the ground, being sucked dry by vampires? Yes, because that what that is is there is a narcotic of misinformation and information manipulation. What the politicians on both sides have figured out at the top, in fact, we're selecting for people who are good at this. We reward the people that are really good at the skill 
of manipulating what I call the lizard brain or the fear, the base cortex of your brain. And that, when I have a seize control over your lizard brain, which is done with keywords and and and, and implications of fear and stimulation. The entire front of your brain stops working and all calculating and all rational and realistic assessment goes out the window. And what we've got is a political system right now with both Republican and Democratic leadership whose entire currency is their ability to manipulate the optics and perceptions of the American people. And the reason why you're seeing so much resistance is because that act of manipulating the brains of people is as old as politicians – but the new tool is this shared visibility of the networked world that makes it quite obvious to everybody involved that everything that we're being told from our politicians is at the best empty platitudes and at worst open and aggressive manipulative lies. And so really what we're trying to figure out how to do, how to do what to do now is how to fix the information market to resolve that. Well, you're part of the information market, uh, how, and so am I actually. How do we fix that? What I'm attempting to do in my own individual journalism, and that was really the big goal with the book, and it's really our goal every day with the TV show and with our web undertakings, is to focus people on a issues-based debate that political parties date to the butter churn, and your view on the NRA should have nothing to do with your view on capital markets, trade policy, or abortion. They're unrelated. And because we have the ability to now arrange ourselves in a modern era around issues in a coalition manner, that journalistically I believe that our first obligation is to define the root issues. Why is it we don't have jobs? Why is it we don't have? Why is it our poverty so high? Why do we have such high wealth inequality? And make the decision to use the right metrics. The horse race of whether Republicans or Democrats are in power is irrelevant. What matters is, do we have a culture of investment in America, and is that culture of investment being encouraged by our banking, trade, and tax policies? And do we understand the root dysfunction of our problems, and are we harnessing the modern resources of the crowd and of experts to address those issues, and are we willing to resolve them in a way that is ruthless enough to actually fix the problem, or are we so afraid of disrupting an incumbent power structure like the big banks or like the big health insurance companies that we're willing to indulge massive amounts of financial, physical, and human pain on millions of people in order to preserve the interests of those those uh, with power? Well, of course, up until now, the answer to those questions has been no. But I, I want to um, uh, introduce you to my, my co-host, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Tucker. Hi, Thanks for joining us, Dylan. Appreciate you being with us. I've really enjoyed the book. Um, just as a, as a note, the, the issue of universal health care has been discussed in this country for decades, going all the way back to Ted Kennedy, who brought it up in the 1960s. So it wasn't just suddenly launched by Max Backus or anyone else, and that the American people have overwhelmingly rejected it, both Democrat and Republican. It's not a particularly new issue. Um, but I want to talk about your chapter on banking. That's very interesting to me. I think you were courageously one of the few people – who was speaking out at the time of the big uh, bank, of, of the big uh, bailouts that this was uh, was theft and that it was a bad idea? Um, it was an no, idea that was they're embraced. They're still doing it today. It's not past tense, Chuck. They're still doing it. Oh yeah, absolutely. In fact, I think Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac just got another nine billion dollar bailout. 
just about uh, $9 billion uh, is a distraction ago. from the $700 trillion that's at J.P. Morgan that's being subsidized through the central banks. It's not just J.P. Morgan, Citigroup. Fannie and Freddie is a distraction from the big problem, but yeah. Well, you see, now this, is, this gets to the issue I wanted to bring up because, well, first of all, both major parties supported this. Uh, both candidates for president supported it in, when it all first started back in September, October of 2008. And the only people that really seemed to reject it was a small group of Republican congressmen and a couple of congressmen on the left who, uh, well, in the case of the Republicans, they suggested that rather than have this enormous bailout, why not put a moratorium on taxes and leave capital in the hands of people who own capital, which would have the same stimulative effect in the economy? But uh, it gets to an, uh, an issue, and I thought you had a brilliant insight when you pointed out that changes in the way we do things with the computers, uh, you know, with, with, with computer information, have forced banks to operate differently. They can no longer rip us off with, uh, with high quotes on bond issues. They have to, people can look it up online. They can do a trade almost for free. And that they responded with uh, various very interesting and complex techniques of uh, leveraging debt and, and whatnot. But but shouldn't this make us question? It wasn't that complicated. Way actually, all they did is they just created a very specific market that trades in the, like it's the dark ages in the 1400s. So basically, they had a bond market, they had a stock market, these sorts of things. The computer made those things transparent, reduced their profitability. So they just invented a, a credit insurance market that is a, basically a fraudulent market that trades in complete blackness and made the price of everything dependent on it and use it as blackmail to bribe the American people to pay it out by the hundreds of trillions whenever they need it. All you need to do is and basically you have, apply basic capitalism yeah. and put these things on an exchange. We're, we're bizarrely living in the 1400s for the, self, for the preservation of a few banks that are completely destroying our country. And, and you mentioned quite accurately that in the final year of the Clinton administration, Congress got rid of the... Um, of several measures that allow banks to basically do business under the same roof, roof as uh, international banking operations and insurance companies, uh, rules that went all the way back to, to the FDR administration. Uh, that coupled with uh, legislation that gave more teeth to the Community Investment Act that forced regulators to pressure banks to give mortgages to people who couldn't afford them. And then we found out in September of 2008 that no, no, but you missed a critical piece of information, Chuck. You missed a huge piece of legislation there in your summary. What you said is true, yeah. but the most important thing is the Commodity Futures Modernization Act passed in 2000, which declared right. that credited default swaps are exempted from bucket shop laws and cannot be regulated as online gaming. And as a result, they we are now subsidizing trillions of dollars in online speculation without the ability to regulate it as such. We're being told that it's an investment security, which is a lie. Well, why are we told that we have to subsidize this? I mean, we, we were shocked to find out that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were not just private banks, but in fact had a clause in their contract that said that the taxpayers would have to bail them out. But I don't think there's anything in the contracts of these other firms that says we have to bail them out. Why are we bailing them out? Uh, because what they've done is they consolidated with the credit insurance scam Remember, they're selling insurance on the cost of everything, so that's all the food, all the oil, all the electricity, all the houses, all the cars, everything. And they, mm -hmm. they artificially reduced the cost of everything by, by legislative author, legislatively authorizing this uh, credit insurance scam that the banks and government created to perpetuate themselves in the short term. And what happens mm -hmm. is, while the vast majority of that now $700 trillion scam back 
water dark market. A very small percentage of that is related to mission critical resources like energy pricing, food pricing, <clears throat> excuse me, some other critical transportation assets. And because it's not traded on an exchange, it's impossible to differentiate between which four or five percent of that marketplace is mission critical and what percentage is just idle gambling among uh, uh, financial cowboys with other people's money. And so what happens is is when the market becomes dysfunctional, as it did in 2008 and as it did again in 2011 with uh, the European crisis, what happens is uh, if I'm the banker and you're the government in this instance, I'm able to walk into your office and I say, listen, in this bag in front of me, I have three or four diamonds that you depend upon for the stability of your country, energy, food, transportation, etc. Also in this bag, I have a huge pile of horse manure. I am going to not let you look inside the bag, which is what an exchange would let us do, and I'm going to price the entire bag as if it was diamonds. And I'm going to ask you to pay for the whole thing. And our government keeps saying, okay, yes, we'll do that. We did it, we've done it twice now, 08 and 11, with the swaps lines at the Federal Reserve. And the reason we keep doing it is because the banks have the leverage to say, well, if you force us to sort through all of this, it will cause you to have to restructure J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America, and that's going to be dis- and then everybody claims that that's going to be disruptive to the economy because they don't want to have the honest assessment for the obvious need for a Marshall Plan, a bypass, a bypass lending business. When you have cancer, you don't want to cure it with a knife, and you don't want to pretend you don't have cancer. You actually want to create a cohesive strategy to restructure the debt and re-incentivize your capital markets to invest in your country as opposed to create debt and export it to your currency. Dylan, I think that you're offering, and in every one of your chapters, you offer some excellent public policy suggestions for how to address the specific situations. But in the issue of banking, there is, an, there is a suggestion I'd like to make that is extremely controversial, and yet it's being brought up by none other than Ron Paul, and I'd like you to comment on it. And that is that perhaps the problem, we're talking about symptoms, the disease is the entire monetary system the way it stands today. We have a monetary system that is run by a consortium of private bankers that is called the Federal Reserve. Why don't we have Congress reassert its constitutional authority, Article 1, Section 8, Clause 4, to regulate currency in this country? Why don't they issue because 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 currency? any action that you take any action that you take right now is so massively disruptive to the status quo. So there's a lot of right answers to the question, and you may have one there. I can give you 10 other potential right answers, but until you agree that this system is so sick that it actually needs to be gracefully managed over the course of five years, as long as everybody wants to indulge their ego to tear it down because they know it's corrupt, which it is corrupt and it needs to be torn down, but the way you do that will determine your own future, and if you do it elegantly with a Marshall Plan and a cohesive actual plan to to mark down and dissolve those assets bypass lending, all those things, you'll be, you could have a, really one of the most prosperous and super innovative countries in the history of the world. If you try yeah, well, to cure look, cancer I mean, I, with a knife, you're just going to kill yourself. Well, first of all, I agree that it would have to be done gracefully and very, very carefully over time. But there is nothing that would prevent the federal government, for example, Congress, to begin issuing constitutional money 
in the form of paying uh, domestic uh, obligations like Social Security, for example, or Medicare. They could even pay for Obamacare uh, with such money, but issued in such a way that it would not inflate the dollar. And they could begin to uh, solve the foreign trade imbalance with gold and silver. I mean, I'm just saying that it couldn't be done overnight. Yeah, you could do that, but you should understand that that if you look at history, the last person to do that was Adolf Hitler, who got rid of the Reichsmark and went with the Deutschmark. An arbitrary decision to print a new currency because you're angry at the old one is a good decision for your ego and a bad decision for your country. Patrick, well, wait a minute. First of all, Hitler Hitler kept the central banks and uh, did not. And they My point is, it is an attractive fantasy to print a new currency, but it is not a rational solution because the currency's corruption is symptomatic of an underlying issue, which is the complete and utter lack of capital requirements in your banking system. And if you don't actually have a sound capital base in your banking system, though nothing else that you do will fix it. We have a couple of emails, well, one be, of which is yeah, right sorry. on this question. This is one from one of our regular listeners, Randy Andy, and he wants to know, if all this is true, why is it the dollar getting weaker? As far as I can tell, the, the dollar is getting stronger against all the world's currencies, and we're better off for it. And, and that is a great question, and it's the right question. The simple answer to that is this. Because the United States is the reserve currency by which all global commodities are traded, so if you're China and you want to buy oil, you have to purchase it in U.S. dollar-denominated assets. That's what being the reserve currency means. We have the unique privilege of being able to do everything that we're describing and feel none of the effects. It's almost like we've taken an anesthetic. And so you're pressure-loading the system without any pain. The currency doesn't feel it. Interest rates don't show it. All of the natural market corrective forces that would respond to this behavior are rendered completely um, impotent to force change of any kind for the simple reason that, indeed, uh, our cur- that the people have no choice. We also have the advantage that, uh, as, that the same exact screwed-up system that we adopted under Bob Rubin in the late 90s was also adopted by our friends in Western Europe and they screwed it up even worse than we did. And so the nice thing for our politicians and our system is while it, while the current system doesn't create any investment in our country and unemployment will continue to go up and wealth inequality will continue to go up and poverty will continue to go up due to the lack of investment, because the media in our country doesn't really care about any of those things, they just care about GDP and the P&L at the banks, the system we have right now is brilliantly set up to perpetuate the P&L at the banks and the, the GDP structure in terms of the flow rate and the transaction rate, it simply is not designed to invest any capital in the development of our country. And we're able to get away with that because we have the benefit of the reserve currency. It's why China, one of the things China looks into on a regular basis is the expansion of a super regional trading currency based on the Chinese currency because they know that ultimately the coup de grace for China is when they can replace the dollar as the global trading currency. That's when the dollar basically pops like a balloon and they're and, and they're get, actively working and on that bread goes from bread goes to five hundred dollars a loaf in a weekend yeah. uh, in that scenario fortunately china has so many dollars of their own right now that if they did that they would be screwing themselves which gives us probably five or ten years to work this out although i suspect what will happen is our politicians and our media will use it to hide from until the catastrophe and then we'll have to deal with it um there's another follow-up question on that this is from bushmaster in los angeles Buster Master, sorry, Buster Master in Los Angeles, who's, who writes, why can't we just use tariffs to protect our businesses here? They do it to us. Why can't we do it to them? 
Uh, if we were to engage in, in that level, it would be a direct threat to the profit chain of companies like Caterpillar and Walmart and John Deere and others who make a significant profit through their investments over the past 30 years in the rig training arrangements because they're invested in China. Remember, the, the number one lobby against trade reform in America is not China. The number one lobby in Washington, D.C. against trade reform with China is American multinationals who are invested in China and are profiting up the wazoo at the expense of the destruction of our country. So you have a small but highly influential group of multinational CEOs in America paying off our government to ensure the perpetuation of rig trade with China because it's very profitable for them in the short term. Can you name some of those companies? I just did. Walmart, Caterpillar, John Deere, GE. Apple? Uh, Apple's different. Apple, I don't get the sense, doesn't spend a ton of money lobbying. Apple more takes advantage of the construct in order to just hire Chinese slaves to make the iPhones. But I don't get the sense that they're as aggressive on the policy advocacy side as the GEs and the Walmarts who have a much larger capital investment, multi-billion dollar capital investments in manufacturing and development in China. For for Apple, it's just an opportunity to hire slaves that that uh, doesn't hurt their PR so much. Uh, we have a couple of, of minutes left. I've got one more question, and then uh, I know Chuck wants to follow up on something. That the, the the email here uh, that I'd like I've got a lot of emails, but I'm trying to sift them out so they're right on target here. And this is from Elaine Marksman in Seattle, and she asks, Does Mr. Radigan advocate a constitutional amendment banning political campaigns donations? This seems to be the only way to separate business and government. What do you think? I mean, yes, if you've been following, in fact, I, I have not only started advocating this last year, I currently uh, am the founder of the largest single nonprofit in America on the issue of reforming money in politics, uh, partnered with a group called United Republic and the Get Money Out Foundation. Uh, so not only do I advocate a 28th constitutional amendment that says corporations are not people and money is not speech, but I advocate immediate and aggressive crisis-level super PAC transparency legislation today in Washington, D.C., that we should not have to wait for super PAC transparency legislation. Republicans for years have argued for transparency. Democrats have argued for regulation. And right now we have unregulated, non-transparent money. Okay. Uh, Chuck, we've got one minute. you have another question? No, no. I mean, I, I would tend to agree in that we should know who is funding these big uh, media buys, but ultimately it does come down, I think, to free speech. I think that people have a right to express themselves, and money is a is a vehicle, it's a means of uh, of doing that. Um, but if we know who's doing it, and if the media does its job of reporting that, then we, I think we'd be okay with it. Uh, Dylan, you have the last word. No, no, I think that that's exactly right. Chuck and I may have a lot of things that we could disagree to, and a lot of us, there's 311 million of us in this country, we could disagree to a lot of things. But that's how the status quo preserves the power and destroys us. Our job for 2012, 311 million of us, is to find the one or the two things that we can agree to right now. So, for instance, super PAC transparency legislation immediately, and then take it from there. And that's the time we have today. Uh, Dylan, I want to thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for the kind words. Thanks for the time, guys. That's Dylan Radigan, and the book is Greedy Bastards. It's available nationwide in bookstores and online, and I want every one of our listeners to go out and get it now. We're going to have to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll continue our conversations. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. (laughs) 
to our blog talk. We're taking a quick break here. Well, uh, our states identified themselves. Uh, we were able to push uh, You entered the key to exit. Oh, oh, Thank go. you for using our service. <laughs> Goodbye. We have a very polite conference service. That's all I can say is we have a very polite conference service. <laughs> we're our, in our our blog talk listeners now know how polite our conference service is. You're getting to see behind, you're getting to hear behind the scenes here with a national radio show. <clears throat> when we come back, we're going to continue a conversation, and um, and then in hour two, we're going to hear what may be, and I'm not sure, but may be a different side. We're going to talk to the co-chairs of the Rate Coalition. The Rate Coalition is a coalition of, I think, close to 40 major global corporations that are putting together a plan to revise corporate taxes and submitting it to, con- to Congress. Uh, our two co-chairs are actually in a meeting right now with U.S. senators. And when we talk to them a little later in hour two, uh, they'll tell us about that meeting and also what they and the members of their coalition see as um, a solution to some of the problems Dylan brought up. And incidentally, the two co-chairs are, are like Chuck and I. They're from two opposite ends of the political spectrum. So this is going to be quite interesting. Stay tuned. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. And we probably have about 10 seconds. Just about the better. Okay. Coming back now. Okay. We're back with our two. listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the CyberStation USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, as many of you already have, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars, and pardon me for stepping on your lines there. We are back with Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in Los Angeles co-hosting with Chuck Morris. He's in Boston. It's February 1st. 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We're pushing the boundaries of radio. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern on CyberStationUSA.com, BlogTalkRadio.com, and our radio affiliates. Well, our radio affiliates are in a news uh, break right now, so um, I just want to remind you, you can call us, 424-675-6806. You can also email us at fairnessradio at gmail.com. I apologize to our listeners for all the emails we didn't get to while we are talking to Dylan Radigan, but uh, we were, uh, oh, that's right, we're not in hour two yet. You're right, we're just back uh, from um, uh, the interview with hour one. Sorry about that. Um, so I want to uh, uh, continue on our conversation. Chuck, that was uh, quite an interview with Dylan Radigan there. Yeah, I thought it was pretty interesting, Patrick. Just as a little um, footnote, um, the Nazis did not get rid of the central bank. If anything, they enhanced the power of the central bank. Hamashak was the uh, banker of the Reich Bank throughout the Third Reich, and um, that I think that had a lot to do with uh, their, you know, their, their monetary issues. Also, Lenin, when he took over the Soviet Union, said that he supported central banking because it constituted 90% of the road toward communism. And that Karl Marx in the Communist Manifesto 
had 10 planks of communism. The fifth plank was support for central banks. So, you know, it, it, this is the system we have, and I think we could have constitutional currency issued into the economy gradually without any major change in how we do business other than the fact that the dollar would eventually be stable to the point where it would be worth a dollar. You know, the thing about constitutional currency that worries me is that um, uh, the the political manipulation that's possible by by Congress, which is, of course, one reason why we set up a, uh, a, a central bank in the first place, is that Congress would constantly manipulate the value of the currency to enhance uh, its own re-election capabilities. And I just wonder, is there a way to, to, to prevent that? Yes, the uh, the money would have to be issued under very strict laws that would only allow non-political savings in instruments to be issued based strictly on the gross national product. They could not issue more than we need. They could not issue less than we need. If anything, it takes the politics out of the money. Right now, the the, the, the currency is manipulated by the central bankers. Uh, that's yeah, and they do so to help people get elected or not elected, and Congress can manipulate the currency by w- when they want money, when they want to increase spending, rather than go to the public and ask for a tax increase, which is what they're supposed to do. Instead, they can get the debt monetized by going to the Federal Reserve and getting uh, the Federal Reserve to give them bonds, and then they increase spending. Uh, we're not paying for that. That's what the $16 trillion debt is. That's well, which a, is they what put Dillon that debt off to future generations. Yeah, Excuse which me? is what, exactly what Dylan pointed out. Um, who gets to decide and how do they decide how much the country needs? The Federal Reserve decides, and they do it in secret, is how they decide. No, no, and right then now, they, they, Congress, under constitutional right currency. Well, in the constitutional currency, the Congress would decide in an open session – with public hearings, and they can certainly consult with economists, and there could be laws put in place to make sure that the amount of currency issued does not exceed or it is not less than what the economy needs. Well, who it wouldn't even be a political needs, issue. <laughs> the gross national product. The economy, the pro- it, what it is, Patrick, the reason you have a gross national product, it, it, it reflects the total number of transactions pretty close to an estimate of what that is and what that will be within, uh, given, uh, I think it goes out several months, in, in a given period of time. That's how much the economy needs. That's how much cash we need. No more, no less. Actually, I would um, uh, dispute that. Um, gross national product, uh, which was in, invented um, uh, in order to, because there was no other measure of, of economic activity, only measures the uh, the uh, transmission of currency through the economy it doesn't distinguish right it, it gives the same value to um uh, uh putting out a forest fire as it does to building a building it does it doesn't it doesn't distinguish between destructive activities and constructive activities and it's possible for a country to have a very high gross gross national product and yet be bankrupt and, and getting and getting worse which actually is part of the problem here I would say the gross national product is probably one of the worst ways you could do it because gross national product contains within its measurement very destructive activities. If, if, you, um, if people start getting cancer, 
all the uh, treatment for that cancer uh, is included in the gross national product, but it's not a good thing that, that we have a cancer epidemic in the country. So I would want to see a no, different we measure need, than that. But we need money to pay for it, Patrick. I mean, the gross national product is an objective measure of how much money we need, whether it be for constructive or destructive things, what the economy needs to function. And if you're going to if, – if, if more money was issued because of a lot of destructive and negative activity, things that were not producing goods and services, then there would be an inflation, in which case Congress would have to pull back the currency. It's that simple. It would constantly have to be readjusted. But that's what Congress is supposed to do. That's why we elect a government. Our government is, you know, that, that's part of sovereignty. It's a, it's a basic function. The government is supposed to watch the currency and make sure that the dollar is as closely worth the dollar as possible. If you, you find that there's too much money, then you bring it back. You pull it back in the form of raising taxes. Do, if there's not enough them? money, then you send it out. Excuse me? Do, do you trust Congress to make those, those decisions wisely? As I said, it would have to be done with very carefully delineated laws. I think it would have to be done with the balanced budget amendment. There would have to be some other things put in place to make sure that Congress didn't just start printing money. Uh, okay. You know, it, 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 they could. I wouldn't trust them. Okay, Patrick, we're, we're I want to. I want to just. We're just about out of time. Okay. An hour one. We did get an email that uh, that I did did want to read. It was a note from a listener who says that um, not to bring up too fine a point, but uh, he mentioned GE. That is he being Dylan Radigan as one of the companies, um, and GE still owns a part of NBC and uh, MSNBC. So it's courageous on his part. Um, thank you, for, uh, listener, for that. We uh, we are, I believe, we're about out of time for uh, hour one, and uh, we will uh, take a break and come back. And this time, we'll really have hour two. Sorry about that. I was uh, reading the wrong script here. So, we're going to take a break. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Uh, we are wrapping up hour one. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversations, and we're also going to, to explore corporate tax reform with. Uh, two people who really know what they're talking about and a coalition of major corporations who are behind it. And incidentally, these two guests are going to be pulled out of a meeting with U.S. senators to be on the radio with us so that we can ask them what the senators are having to say. So that's it for Hour One. Don't go away. We'll be back after news, and uh, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Blog Talk listeners, uh, we have to take a break here for our radio stations. They're, they're going into an advertising break and a news break. We'll be back before they will. Um, in the meantime, uh, we're we're looking forward to more emails and even some phone calls from you. I know you're all sitting there with your headphones on. Either you're downloading the show uh, or you're uh, listening live, but you've got your headphones on at work and you're sneaking emails to us. We always appreciate that. The um, our blog talk listeners and all of our listeners are actually we have discovered and many of our guests have said that you're a pretty intelligent bunch. Of course, you have to be intelligent to, to be listening to us. Naturally, you know that. But um, we really appreciate that. Um, coming up uh, for the rest of the week, uh, with, this is uh, obviously uh, in the middle of the week, and we've got two more two more days. And tomorrow, um, we're going to be talking with Rob Boston. Uh, Rob Boston is from Americans United. 
uh, for the separation of church and state. Uh, we actually would normally have him on Tuesdays on religion and politics, but uh, because of scheduling, we didn't. Uh, he's going to talk about the, uh, the so-called war on religion, uh, whether or not there is a war on religion, whether or not there are people, institutions, members of Congress, administration, whatever, that uh, um, are conducting some kind of a war on religion. And also the, the opposite charge, too, is religion conducting a war on various people in our society, women and gays, for instance. So that's going to be a very hot topic, a very hot topic. In uh, hour one, uh, Peter Feeman, uh, a conservative writer, is going to talk about his new book, The Next Nightmare, in which he looks at the possible economic collapse in this country. Interestingly enough, uh, he parallels some of the things that Dylan Radigan has to say. So when you uh, listen to Peter Freeman, to Peter Feeman tomorrow, keep in mind some of the uh, what you heard from Dylan Radigan t- uh, today, and also what you're going to hear in, in hour two. Uh, Friday, coming back from right now, Patrick. Oh. So hold on and uh, pick it up later. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Jack and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. And again, if you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, as many of you already have, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Gentlemen, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. And this is Hour 2. Uh, we are back with Hour 2 of Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan in Los Angeles, co-hosting with the great Chuck Morse in Boston. And it's February 1st, 2012, and we are the only radio program in America that routinely listens to voices from all sides. We're going to do that today with our uh, upcoming guest. And we are pushing the boundaries of radio. We broadcast Monday through Friday from 1 to 3 Eastern, and we're on the Cyber Station USA.com network. We're also on the Blog Talk Radio network, and we're on terrestrial radio stations who will be with us in a few minutes after they come out of a news break. We'd like to have you with us. Email us, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And also, don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com, www.fairnessradio.com. Well, before we open up for that radio audience, they're in a news break right now. Let me introduce you to my friend and colleague, the best selling author. My co-host, Chuck Morris. Hi, Chuck. How are you, Patrick? I'm good. You are best-selling, aren't you? I wouldn't say best-selling. But it sells, but it's not best-selling. Well, they're, they're good books, too. And, and I, know you, I know your next book will be out, what, in April? It'll be out tax day, yes, that being a Whig manifesto. That, that of course, is, is purely accidental, right? Right. Well, that's what the publisher decided. And, of course, I, you know I've written many books that have not been published. Um, what I've done recently is I've taken four of them and I've woven them into a master manuscript and I've added a fifth one, uh, which I'm just starting to write about, which is about money. That's how I'm, I'm so fascinated by this topic. I'm studying it. And I'm calling it The Five Great Hoaxes of All Time. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, my literary agent is well. My literary agent is actually very encouraged. He's, he's shopping it around to uh, publishers. It's a huge book. It's a magnum opus. I mean, it's almost four hundred thousand words. This is, you know, my book about uh, the theory of evolution. It's my book about 
uh, Karl Marx's anti-Semitism and his famous pamphlet on the Jewish question. It's about my Bible commentary on the book of Genesis, and it's about Acorn. The fifth book is going to be called The Science of Money. So it's the and I and I basically wrote a whole new forward to it in an introduction, and it's going to be interesting. I hope it gets published. Well, since you mentioned Acorn, I noticed that Acorn has popped up in the news again, and this time uh, related to uh, Newt Gingrich. Um, uh, as you may know, uh, the um, uh, Newt Gingrich turned in uh, uh, signatures in order to get on the uh, Virginia ballot, and the. Uh, the Secretary of State of Virginia found that 1,500 of those signatures, uh, of those registration signatures, were actually false. And Newt, right. Newt is saying that uh, he was defrauded, much like Acorn was defrauded by a, a, uh, people who just wrote in names of Mickey Mouse and things like that. So it can happen to the worst of us, voter fraud. Uh, it wasn't. It isn't just Acorn that was a victim of voter fraud. Even uh, Newt Gingrich is a victim of voter fraud too. Yeah. Well, of course, Patrick, those are two different things. And uh, there were plenty of people that have testified that uh, ACORN was, was part of this, including many former ACORN employees who have testified before Congress and others who have been ACORN employees who have been convicted. I mean, it's a little bit different. I mean, certainly, and I don't know, and by the way, I'm not saying the new Gingrich maybe didn't try to get some, put in some fraudulent signatures. Well, no, he didn't. Nobody's saying he did. It's somebody who worked for him. Right. Anyway, Patrick, but uh, uh, I want to go back to a left-right issue of, um, of of what is moral, and is uh, that, I want to ask is that you. Left-right. I think that you've described it as such. Oh, okay. You said the right is concerned with moral process and morality, whereas the left cares about outcomes. And it's not uh, a bright so, line; and, it's more of a spectrum. Well, and you've been arguing that in the first part of the program. So I want to ask you, what do you think of the morality of chattel slavery? <laughs> you know, I, I suspect that, that uh, until you get tired of this, you're going to be coming up with, with various things you're going to ask me about the morality of this and the morality of that, uh, until you finally get me to say something is moral or is not moral. Is, is, am, I, yeah. am I pretty well right on that? Well, <laughs> I'm going to do – you're right, but I'm going to, I have another thing I'm going to do further once we get to that. But anyway, what, what about it? Chattel slavery, moral or immoral? Well, well being, the, being the host of, of, of today's show, uh, we may not get to that today because I've got some other things I want to do today. Uh, and also we have a, a, a pair of guests coming up. But um, uh, I will take a definitive stand on, um, on slavery of any kind, uh, wh whether it's chattel slavery, as you describe it, or it's uh, the, uh, the tomato growers in, um, in Florida who are locking up illegal uh, immigrants and keeping them as slaves, or the, uh, the, the Chinese workers who build uh, uh, iPhones who are locked up in dormitories and thrown out of bed at 9 o'clock, at 3 o'clock in the morning and told to go to work with a a biscuit and a cup of tea. It's all immoral. Well, and hold that thought, Patrick, because we need to go uh, free up our radio audience. So when we do that, we'll be right back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Stay with us. For our Block Talk listeners, uh, we're going to bring in our radio audience. That means we've got to push the buttons and move things around a little bit. They're coming out of their news break. I want to remind you, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night, and that's at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host of the most, Chuck Morris, 
And Dr. Patrick O'Heffern and Patrick, tell yours. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. And from Cyber Station USA and Blog Talk Radio, it's Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. It's time to welcome our radio listeners on 1490 WWPR in Tampa Bay, Bradenton, Florida, which is going to be the site of the Republican National Convention, and KSKQFM in Ashland, Oregon, the site of the best Shakespeare festival in the country. I know I've been there, and I love it, and I congratulate everybody in Ashland for putting on a fabulous show. I'm Patrick O'Heffernan. I'm in California. I'm co-hosting with Chuck Morse. He's in Boston, and we'd like to hear you as Lars just said, by phone or by email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. And don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com, www.fairnessradio.com. Well, we're back, and Chuck is talking about morality, and uh, I just said that I think that slavery is um, uh, all kinds of slavery, whether it's practiced by uh, individuals like the, the uh, Saudi Arabian couples who, who keep uh, Filipinos uh, in virtual slavery as their house, house guests, or Apple, uh, or the or people at Foxconn, not Apple, Foxconn in China, who uh, who lock up the, the the thousands of people who make our iPhones, or chattel slavery of any kind anywhere. I think that's immoral. Well, Patrick, this is interesting. Me, first of all, I am talking specifically about chattel slavery in the United States, where one individual could own another individual like a piece of property and have a title to that person. I agree with you, of course, especially about communist countries and the slavery that they, they involve. But the reason I bring up the issue of chattel slavery in this country is because it was constitutional, Patrick. In fact, the, in fact, the Supreme Court ruled and actually put the word slavery in a ruling in 1854, the Dred Scott decision, and also that it resulted in a good outcome for a lot of Americans, particularly plantation owners and people who lived in states that had legal slavery, and it didn't particularly negatively affect people who didn't have slaves. So under that definition, wouldn't that be a situation where you have no right to have a moral opinion? Because after all, it's the decision of those who are acting constitutionally who own the slaves. Well, I, I think your, your historical uh, view there is a little too narrow. When you say it, it led to a good outcome, uh, the uh, eventual outcome of that was a civil war, which I believe is not a good outcome. So, so, so I think I'm well. I'm I could argue that, there. Patrick. I could argue that a woman's abortion is not a good outcome for them too. That's my opinion. But nevertheless, it was argued at the time that uh, slavery was good for the people who owned slaves, and that it was constitutional. So. Who were you to propose your moral opinion on something that's constitutional and that has a good outcome? Because that's the argument you're using with regard to you're not revealing your moral opinion about slavery, I mean about abortion, but apparently you have no problem revealing it about slavery well, under like the I same said, criterion. Like, like I said, it led to a bad outcome, and I wouldn't say it led to a good outcome for everybody in the country because it led to a pretty bad outcome for the slaves. Well, I mean, you could argue that abortion leads to a bad outcome for the unborn child. If I, I mean, if I'm just I talking, look, an unborn I, child. Or you could deny the humanity of a slave, which a lot of people did too. But well, Patrick, were, were I am bringing it up. Wrong. Well, you could say that uh, people have a view on abortion are also patently wrong. Uh, but the, the, the reason do. I'm bringing it up is because I'm, you're, I'm using the same criterion that you have used to 
say, well, I don't comment on my moral opinions. It's all up to what is constitutional, and it's other people who are doing it. It's up to them to decide what is moral. And the same, of course, situation did exist with child slavery. It was up to the slave owner to decide who were you to have a moral opinion. It was constitutional because the Supreme Court said so. Well, you know, the Supreme Court does make, make mistakes. It made a huge mistake in Citizens United, and hopefully it's going to be overturned. And in that particular Dred Scott decision, it was overturned and changed. And, of course, when the slave uh, owners said it was good for them, they were denying the slaves uh, their voice to stand up and say, well, it's not good for us. In this particular case, the women can stand up and say that uh, we want abortions. 300,000 of them every year stand up and say that. Uh, and the majority of the people of the United States have t tell pols pollsters over and over again that they want the women to have the freedom of abortion. So your, your, uh, your situations are, are not analogous, uh, Chuck. They are entirely analogous. And they, before it was overturned by a civil war, it was the law of the land. Uh, Roe versus Wade could be overturned, too. But the fact is that today it's the law of the land and it's been deemed as constitutional by the Supreme Court, which is something that's very important to you, at least when you can selectively quote it. So given the fact that it was the law of the land, especially and confirmed by the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott case, why would you have any business telling someone who is constitutional and who is operating under the laws what you think about it morally? I, I actually, well, since I wasn't there, I, I didn't. But uh, in this particular case, I realize what, what, what you're doing. Um, I want to see that. I want to hear what the slaves have to say. We can't deny them their voice, and, and their voice was denied. <clears throat> and because of that, uh, we really didn't have a, uh, uh, a I, I believe, a legal, constitutional American situation going on there because we had hundreds of thousands of people who were not allowed to speak about their rights. In this particular case. Women can speak about their rights all they want, so it's not an analogous situation. Do you think that child abuse is immoral or infant abuse? Uh, Chuck, how many more of these things are you going to c c come up with? Do I think war is immoral? Do I think prostitution is immoral? You know, we could spend the entire radio program with you making up little scenarios and asking me if they're moral. I'm just not going to get into that anymore. I'm here to talk politics. We can talk morals on Tuesdays. No, no, no. Well, no, morals are part of every conversation, Patrick. Well, and this is a right conversation that I'm going to have. We have guests coming up. We do indeed. Okay. You're listening, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyber Station USA Radio Network and our affiliate station. Stay with us. We'll be right back. For our Blog Talk listeners, stay right with us. We're going to have two fascinating guests who are like Chuck and I, come from different parts of the political spectrum on, and we're going to talk about a very controversial topic these days and a very topic in the news, and that is corporate tax reform. We need it. So stay with us. Don't forget your email, fairnessradio at gmail.com. You can call us, the number that Lars gave you, you have up on your screen uh, there. And also, if, so you listen to the show, we know you like the show, we know you like to download the show, tell your friends. Hit that little like button down there and tell your friends. Post us on Facebook. Tweet it. Let your friends know that this is the only radio show in America that we've seen every day. Considers opinions from all sides. Every day learns things from people that we don't agree with, we don't normally listen to. So put us on your Facebook page. Put us, uh, tweet about it. If you, uh, if, you, if you let your friends know, we'll get even more people that 
Don't agree with us. It's Don't agree with that. Check. Gentlemen, uh, we have the two guests with us. Hold on one second. We have about ten seconds, and I'm going to bring you back. Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyberstation USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number to call. And you can also send us an email any time of the day or night at fairnessradio at gmail.com. But now I'll send it back to our host with the most, Chuck Morris and Dr. Patrick O'Heffernan. Patrick, it's all yours. Thank you, Lars. Thank you. Well, the rate of the corporate tax rates and the amount of money that corporations pay in taxes has been a hot topic lately. The uh, candidacy of uh, Mitt Romney has brought that to the fore and focused a, a, a hot spotlight on it. And we're hearing about the Buffett rule and many, many other possible revisions to the tax code. Uh, there is another revision that's being considered, and that's the revision being considered by the corporations themselves. And they're in a coalition called the Rate Coalition. Its co-chairs, like Chuck and I, come from two different political perspectives, and they're working on a tax reform to get America going again. Jim Pinkerton is contributor to Fox News and a recognized expert on innovation and competitiveness. Elaine K. Mark is a lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and one of the founders of the New Democrat movement that helped elect Bill Clinton president. They are co-chairs of the Rate Coalition, and they are with us, fresh from a meeting with members of Congress on corporate tax reform. Uh, Elaine and Jim, thank you for uh, being with us on Fairness Radio. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, th- yes, thank you for me too. Thank you. I- I'm dying to ask you what was going on in that meeting, but but first of all, why don't you tell our listeners what the Rate Coalition is, who your members are, and what your mission is? Well, why don't I, I start? I'm the Democratic co-chair of the coalition, and our coalition so far consists of 26 uh, large American corporations, which among them are many that our audience, I'm sure, has heard of, Walt Disney, FedEx, uh, Macy's, and they employ lots of Americans, and they have a very simple proposition, which is surprising to some. They would like to put their tax loopholes on the table and return for a lower corporate tax rate. The corporate tax rate in America is 35%, and the corporate tax rate for countries that we compete with, mostly the European countries and other advanced countries, is more like 25%. So we are way out of whack with our competitors, and it's a pretty simple proposition. Uh, Lower the tax rate, get rid of loopholes, and we think that's fairer and better for everyone. Jim, you want to add anything to that? Well, exactly. I mean, the the argument for the economics of it, you know, has been pretty well thought through by experts on both the right and the left. Our proposal is extremely similar to the Bowles-Simpson proposal from from, uh, 2010, uh, from the Rivlin Domenici Commission, and, and most of all from... Uh, President Reagan's tax reform legislation of 1986, going back more than a a quarter century now, to the days when President Reagan and the Democratic House Ways and Means Committee Chairman Dan Rostenkowski agreed uh, that the the most important thing was to lower the rates and, as Elaine said, broaden the base. And that is, you know, lower trade away 
uh, tax breaks uh, uh, in re- return for a lower lower top marginal rate, with the ar- argument being that this gets the government and the tax lawyers and the accountants and the K Street lobbyists out of the game of picking winners and losers and just focuses companies uh, on doing what they do best, which is make and sell their products and allow America, therefore, to be more competitive because, as Elaine said, uh, we will soon, as of April 1st, have the the unbelievably dubious distinction of having the highest uh, corporate tax rate of any industrialized country. But as you well know, uh, the uh, actual compliance with that tax rate is very low and that uh, many studies have shown that American corporations actually pay closer to 17 percent uh, on their um, their earnings rather than the 35 percent that, that is constantly being cited by the business community. So are you recommending that uh, all of the loopholes, the ability to hide profits abroad, the profit transfers, the bookkeeping gimmicks all go away and they actually will pay exactly what you're talking about? Yeah, I I think that the way to understand that is that all these companies out there that pay less than the 39%, 35%, 39% if you include state and local, um, are doing so because they are taking advantage of decades full of special interest loopholes. Which they wrote. Let's be clear about that. They put those in. They wrote. Absolutely. They wrote them to to get themselves to a lower tax rate. And they admit, or at least the companies in our coalition admit, that these don't often make the best economic sense. And one of the reasons to get rid of these loopholes is that they distort business decisions. Um, You know, for instance, in this morning's meeting, uh, one of the companies talked about how the deduction for interest – caused companies to borrow more. Well, we just went through a recession. We're still in a recession due to lots and lots of borrowing. And yet the tax code actually encourages borrowing. So what we're, what most economists say and many corporations say is they say, look, we just want a lower tax rate. We would rather make business decisions based on what we think will make us grow rather than what the tax code causes us to do. And that's why the loopholes are, in fact, on the table. Well, that makes ultimate sense. And, of course, many on, on my side of the political ledger, the progressive side, have been arguing uh, for that for some time. We uh, are a little dubious that that will actually happen. What I'm afraid will happen um, is that uh, a bill will be introduced in Congress to lower the uh, the tax rate, and it will pass, and, and it will be signed by the president, and then many, many bills will be introduced in Congress to uh, rid the loopholes, and they will be fought one by one, and we'll wind up with a lower tax rate and many of the loopholes uh, still in place. Well, as, as the other progressive on the phone here, uh, let me say that the the your co- I I understand your suspicion, but the way tax bills get written is actually not as a series. They generally get written in one bill, and the reason is that whenever you're changing a tax, you're losing some money to the government. So you most likely have to, especially in this day where everyone's concerned about deficits, you have to make it deficit neutral. Uh, 25 years ago, we had a major tax bill passed through Congress, which Jim referred to, and what they did is they put the lower rates and the loopholes all in one bill so that what you just mentioned couldn't happen. And uh, I don't know of anyone who would imagine a 2013 or 2014 tax bill passing that didn't follow that model. 
Well, I, I understand that, and, and one of the reasons why I brought that up is that in, in any revision of the corporate tax code is going to be a bill several hundred, if not several thousand pages long, and that puts us right back in the situation where your friends down at uh, mentioned in, in K Street can begin to insert things that nobody except they understand, which actually retain loopholes or create new ones. I'm, I'm very afraid that this process won't work. Well, yeah, I think you're right to be afraid because Lord knows there's been plenty of that going on. The the one thing that is unique about our times is the real concern for deficit reduction. And so the only way you can, in fact, lower a rate without adding to the deficit is, in fact, to find offsets. And the easiest offsets to find are in these, what they call the tax expenditures, but which everybody else calls loopholes. So I think that that's the discipline that would be exerted on this process during this uh, during this period of time, and I, I don't see that going away anytime soon. Well, I, I uh, Elaine, last point before I yeah. I, I, excuse me, but I but I have to reject your premise there. In 1955, corporate taxes as a percentage of federal uh, revenue were 27 percent. Uh, they're they're down to about seven percent today. So you're assuming that they have to be uh, revenue neutral. I'm assuming no. That's that's the problem. That corporations are using the infrastructure of the United States and they're not paying for it and they're not paying forward so that we can grow either. I think that any corporate tax tax reform has to increase the amount of revenue that that corporations pay into the United States. They're not paying their fair share, and which is what we heard in in phase from Dylan Radigan in hour one. What? Right. Yeah. Look, the issue facing the country is number one, jobs, uh, and that is uh, who's got a who's got a plan for creating, as Dylan Radigan would say, 30 million jobs. And, and cur- clearly, the current system, the current status quo, uh, with all its you know many flaws, and coming from both the conservative perspective or the liberal perspective. I mean, there's, there's plenty of conservatives that say there should be a zero percent corporate rate. They make a pretty good economic argument that corporations don't. Pay taxes, people pay taxes, and, and that, again, that's that's not the argument we're making, but it's an argument that just reminds us that there's a diverse number of views on this. The reality is, right now, unemployment is eight and a half percent, and if you measure unemployment by labor force participation, it's more like eleven percent, and if you measure unemployment by discouraged workers, you're getting up towards twenty percent. Uh, GDP growth is is well below historic averages, and any economist will tell you that at this current rate of GDP growth, we're looking at unemployment, you know, uh, and as a matter of fact. The Congressional Budget Office said unemployment is going to go up, up next year, above back back toward nine percent. So how can any, how can anybody thinking about public policy and what good tax policy is and what good pro growth policy is and what most of all importantly good jobs policy is say that, that the current system is working and they can't? And so we're saying obviously look you know the rate coalition has 26 members as Elaine said it employs 30 million people across this country, and if even a slight uptick in their employment, uh, to say nothing of a big uptick, uh, would be a major dent in the unemployment rate. And, and I think we better start moving toward that And as, as our prime focus. Uh, otherwise, we're condemning a lot of people to a lot of misery but for the rest of their lives. We completely agree on that. What I'm worried about is that lowering corporate taxes uh, doesn't guarantee that they're going to create more jobs. We've had numerous uh, executives on, on the show uh, who've, who've said that d- it's demand that creates jobs, not taxes. Taxes are a secondary consideration. 
that if we don't increase demand, which means that a greater share of productivity has to go to workers so they actually can spend it, and a greater share of productivity has to go to government so we can keep the infrastructure up up to snuff so we can have so we can create new jobs. Just lowering corporate tax rate only, only at least in the past uh, 20 years, has only added more money to the bonuses and salaries of corporate executives. It has not created more jobs. If you can, if you can well, demonstrate actually, it's going to create more jobs, I'd like to hear it. Well, you know, that's actually not the case after the, the most recent big tax bill was the 1986 tax bill. And that did create jobs. You're right. The, there You're was correct. a very nice period of growth after 1986. And 1986, not 1955, is our model here, which is that you, in fact, try to get a simplification. In, in this debate about taxes, simplification is almost as important or, or may even be more important than reducing the rates. And the reason is that you want companies making decisions about how they spend money based on how they think they're going to grow, not based on a 4,000 different little tax things that lobbyists have gotten into the tax code over the period of years. And there is, uh, most economists agree that the real problem with the corporate tax code is not the rate per se, but the distortion that comes from all of the loopholes that people have put in over the years in order to get their rate down to a competitive rate. I think the second thing is that's really different is we really are in a global economy right now, and we're competing with people in Canada. We're competing with people in Ireland. We're competing with everybody in the OECD. And those tax rates are really down about 24%, 25%, which is where I think we'd like to get our tax rate down to. So we're, we need to do this just to keep our companies competitive, competitive and to make sure that they're growing in a way that produces jobs. No, but nobody makes the assertion that, oh, the tax rates increase jobs. That, it doesn't work like that. But the tax, the tax situation as it is is actually an anti-growth situation. People are playing the tax code when what they should be doing is looking at the market and looking how to grow. Well, we, we agree completely and, and, on and that. And I'm on the subject of jobs. Uh, in 1960, you know, 85% of the top corporations were headquartered in the United States. Now it's around the world. Now it's more like 30%. I mean, there's been a shrinkage. We are facing a competitive world. Obviously, we're happy sure. that other countries have become prosperous. But, you know, when, when other countries are, have tax rates that are, you know, half or less of, of ours, it, you've got to think about where the future corporations will choose to locate and put their headquarters You're, and all their supply chains. And I, I completely agree with you, and, and I know that they also consider uh, the fact that uh, rather than paying $10 an hour here, they can pay uh, $10 a month in China, and that and rather than, than, than have to, to, uh, to agree to... Uh, uh, environmental le- regulations here. They can pollute all they want in, in other countries. They don't have to have work in, worker safety regulations in other countries. So there's other considerations on that. Let me introduce you to my co-host, Chuck Morris. Thank you, Patrick. Thanks for joining us, Jim and Elaine. Uh, I think that, uh, first of all, I'm interested in the uh, the horse race aspect of, of your work in Congress. Um, the, I mean, I entirely agree with both of you that the corporate tax is, is, is regressive and it should come down I would be on the side of bringing it down to nothing, but um, you know, and taxing income and making sure that people are paying an equal tax on a progressive tax scale. 
But um, what's the politics on this? I mean, what what is it being talked about now in Congress? What is the likelihood of this happening? What is the likelihood of President Obama signing such a bill if it did go to his desk? Well, we actually I'll, I'll talked start, about I'll that. Start, why don't I start with President Obama, Jim, because I'm going to then have yeah. to hop off the phone, and, um, okay. and I'll let you take Congress. I mean, uh, President Obama has said twice now in his State of the Union last year and his State of the Union this year that the corporate tax rate is too high. Flat out said it's too high, he'd like to do something about it. Now, going back to our earlier conversation, that depends on how you get the offsets, how you make it budget neutral, et cetera, et cetera, which, which is, of course, tricky but not impossible. And so there is clear indication from the White House that they are going to be open for tax reform uh, in the coming year. And as Jim can tell you, there's a lot of, indi- a lot of interest on this in Congress, including uh, what we did this morning. Right, okay. um, I can, and, th- and thank you, Elaine. Uh, um, yeah, thank just, you. Just this morning, Elaine, Elaine and I, <laughs> on behalf of the Rate Coalition, uh, um, hosted a, a conference, and we had a bunch of tax experts and a bunch of academics. We also had Senator Portman of Ohio, Republican, uh, Senator Nelson of Florida, Democrat, and in, the, in past conferences, we've had uh, Senator Wyden of Oregon, Democrat, we've had uh, Congressman Neal of Massachusetts, Democrat, uh, uh, Congressman uh, Tiberi, uh, Republican of Ohio. And we've we've had a a broad chunk of the Congress just at our at our own discussions where everybody again everybody's got a, a pet idea on what tax reform ought to be. I mean, again, I, I you know I also think that, that the ultimate corporate rate should be a lot lower than it is. Just you know, and I, and I certainly understand the argument for zero. However, in in Washington, in politics, in a in a you know pluralistic country with a lot of different point of views, uh, you are reminded of the wisdom from from Bismarck, the German statesman. Politics is, is the art of the possible. Uh, there, there is a consensus among economists and so on of depoliticizing the economy and simplifying the, the, the tax code and uh, eliminating a lot of the, the rent-seeking power of accountants and lawyers and lobbyists. And that goes back to the idea of you know, uh, lower rates and a, and, a, and a broader base. That That consensus and the political interest as well uh, means that that this is one tax issue, one tax reform, one pro-growth uh, effort that actually could get enacted in 2012 as opposed to 2022. Um, and I think the, the the urgency in terms of unemployment rate and slow growth and so on uh, requires everybody who who thinks uh, thinks hard on this issue to to say, look, what's the difference here between something that I might like in a pie in the sky sense and something that we could actually get done, uh, frankly, prior to the election. Uh, uh, you know, nothing like an election mm-hmm. to clarify the minds of politicians as to what needs to be done, and have them focusing on this. I think would be very valuable and politically rewarding for both parties. Now, Jim, also I agree with Patrick in that there's going to be lobbyists who are going to slip language into this tax bill, probably very arcane and opaque sentences that are going to continue with the loopholes. But I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing, depending upon the loophole we're talking about. There are legitimate business expenses and deductions and um, credits and whatnot. I'd have a problem with uh, actual situations where the government is writing checks to companies. But uh, is there a way that the process could be made more transparent and that these loopholes can be openly debated in Congress, in public, where people can then know what they are and um, urge their Congress people to vote accordingly? 
Well, that would that would certainly be desirable. And if, and if any of your listeners go to ratecoalition.com, that's R-A-T-E coalition.com, you can see exactly what we stand for. I mean, it's it's got the beauty of simplicity. Uh, we're for the 25% rate, and we're willing to look at uh, eliminating uh, tax breaks and broadening the base um, as needed to, to get down to that level. So that, that's about as crystal clear as, as we can make it. I mean, none of us are naive about you know the, the sausage-making process of politics, uh, and that's why, we, frankly, there's some concern um, about some of the things President Obama was saying. If, if you include tax breaks for manufacturing, if you include tax breaks for small business, if you include new provisions for hard-hit communities, um, you're, you're, and, and, and then you oppose, you know, in the name of, outs- of, of opposing outsourcing. All those things sound good, but every one of those things, as you were suggesting, will be a, a feast for some lobbyist uh, to say, well, gee whiz, I, I, I declare uh, uh, this to be an important provision and that to be an important provision. And, and the result of all those good-sounding na- uh, policy names could be an infinitely more complicated tax code down the road, which is not what we want. Uh, you know, Bob Samuels from the Washington you know, if you take away the corporate, if you lower corporate taxes, but then you re-implement taxes by removing tax breaks, which is a tax increase, then there's a zero-sum game for business. It's going to be just as negative a business atmosphere, which will mean that businesses are going to be all that less likely to invest in uh, infrastructures and, and whatnot that create the kind of demand that we need. They're going to continue to hold their money offshore. They're going to continue to hold their money in forms that are not going to be as productive as investment. Well, th- that's the argument at the lower rate, and that is look, the, the the issue is you know if the if the, if the tax goes and this has happened on the on the personal side too. This has been the story of the last thirty years. Is that if if you if you want your economy to be driven by lawyers and tax break loophole artists and so on, then have high rates and lots of loopholes. Uh, if, 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 but the, the world, and I don't just mean America. You know, look, when, in 1986, when the U.S. cut its corporate rate to, th- to 35 percent, uh, you know, the uh, the average of our the OECD, that's the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development, which is sort of the club of industrialized countries, the average of when we were 35, their, their average was closer to 40. Now their average is closer to 25. They, they've every country that we compete with—that's Germany, Canada, you know, Japan, you know, you name it. Um, has cut its corporate rate. In the case of Ireland, they're at 12%, and anybody will tell you that a 12% corporate rate is a great incentive uh, to move your headquarters there. So we've gone from being uh, uh, about, just about the lowest corporate rate in the world 30, 25 years ago to, to, to literally the highest as of April 1st. And so that, that the, the world right. has decided that that the, that too high taxes on either personal personal incomes or corporate incomes are counterproductive. You will spend loopholes, and you will just put your you will or you'll give up and just put your money in you know under the mattress. Um, you know, if you the irony is the whole right, and the irony of the whole thing right. is that uh, by lowering taxes on corporations and allowing them to uh, invest in their companies and, and having pro business legislation. They're actually the government is actually going to end up taking in more money because you're going to have more employees and more economic transactions, which means more incomes to tax. Uh, that's what happened in the 1980s when Reagan lowered taxes. It's what happened in the 1960s when Kennedy lowered taxes. You know, you talk about the high corporate tax rate in the 1950s, but yet that was a lot lower than the taxes were in the 1940s during World War II and the and the Hoover tax which was put into place in 1933 or 32, uh, in that taxes were lowered in 1948 by the new Republican Congress. So 
every time there's a lowering of taxes, you have more economic activity. I think that's an axiom of history. Except uh, during the Bush I, I administration. No, no, Bush well, also. Bush I mean, that, 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 the Boston Globe, even the Boston Globe admitted that the the Bush tax cut staved off what would have been a major recession, and I, I think that absolutely is the case. I mean, it, it's it's across the board true and consistently. Patrick, we we have some emails here, uh, and because I'll get it, we can get into that on another show. We have some emails here for our guest. Um, Paul Zimmerman in Los Angeles says, the problem isn't the tax code. It's the hollowing out of the middle class by the tax code. We have to sift, I think he means shift, shift wealth back to the middle class or there will be no market in the United States for your members to sell to. Fairness is, is what's needed, not just simplicity. Any well, I think I disagree with both those statements, fairness. I think what's most, it is, most needed is growth. Uh, again, eight and a half percent unemployment, eleven uh, percent uh, unemployment by labor force participation, uh, uh, nearly twenty percent by if you count discouraged workers. I mean, that's that's what's most profound is, uh, you know, we've got we've got a, a, a weak economic recovery. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we have fewer jobs today in America than we did in the year two thousand. Uh, that can't be good for anybody. Did you want to comment on on his hollowing out of the middle class and shifting shifting wealth back to the middle class? Well, I mean, these these are important issues, but I I, I have to confess that that, you know, that there's a what we're talking about is this one issue. Again, the, the Rate Coalition, 26 members, has 30 million employees by itself. The rest of corporate America, you know, has you know a lot a lot more than that. Uh, um, we are not trying to solve every problem here. We're trying to solve one problem of making American business and enterprise and the employees that go with it. Uh, more competitive and more effective in the world market. Okay. Lester Porter in St. Paul writes, Chuck's right. The best solution is zero corporate taxes. That will stop double taxation, then raise taxes on the owners to even things out. Any comments on that? Uh, yeah, well, again, I... I <laughs> Lots of good ideas out there. Look, it's easy to it, look, there's plenty of plenty of economists who will say exactly that. There should be a zero percent corporate rate and then raise the raise the personal rates. Well, you know, is, is any member of Congress going to going to vote for that? Uh, maybe, um, it, it, but it, it's got enough there to in, in, annoy both the left, which would want to keep corporate tax rates high, and and, and the right, which obviously would want to would, would resist uh, raising personal rates. Uh, I go back to the argument that we make, which is this is look. The, 25% rate and fewer breaks and, and might not make everybody happy. It might not be, you know, the, the final solution to every problem, but it is a, it is progress. And and you know, again, I've been in Washington since 1980. That's 32 years now. And I will tell you that the legislation that you can get enacted because because you can get a majority in Congress plus the president to sign it uh, is worth a lot more than the legislation that you, you merely talk about and dream about. Uh, absolutely. Um, we've got two of them here, which uh, I'm going to put them together. Uh, the first one is from Sandy Spencer in Tucson, and she says, taxes will be lowered, the loopholes will creep back in, and we'll, we'll be bankrupt eventually. The solution is a one-page bill. The tax rate will be X percentage of all foreign and domestic income. No exemptions, no loopholes, no exceptions, and no changes. That's probably not a possibility, but what do you think of that? Well, I, th I think she's pretty close to what we're talking about, at least on the corporate side. I mean, again, we're not the Rate Coalition. Uh, you know, and anybody who's curious can go to our website, RateCoalition.com. You know, doesn't have any position on 
you know, uh, uh, the you know personal rates and what ought to happen. Although we we do point, you know, with pride and admiration to the 1986 Act, which did both. It did affected both personal rates and corporate rates. And so, you know, at least in 1986, it proved necessary and, and desirable to, to to deal with both issues with the same basic model. That is lower rates in return for a, a, a broader base. And of course, no no Congress can bind a future Congress. So you you, know, you couldn't. You know, you can you, you all you can do is instead of say you can't you can't make the 112th Congress talk say the, the 132nd Congress you, you can't do this. What you can do is make a good enough package that makes people happy, um, that looks satisfactory to people. And again, I got I have to tell you that given our current situation, if you told me that we're going to have a a good tax policy for the next 10 years uh, that will get the economy back on track and create jobs. I'd frankly be less concerned about what happens in year 11. Uh, uh, I'll, I'll take the next 10 years in terms of getting people's housing values back and their jobs and careers back. Um, and if something happens on the 11th year, well, we'll take that up 11 years from now. I, I kind of agree with that. Uh, Pam20744 at Yahoo uh, asks, uh, what rate does he recommend and how does he arrive at it? Well, we, our goal is to get the U.S. down to the OECD. Again, this, this, this OECD is the Organization of Economic Cooperation and Development. So it's a, sort of a transnational organization based in, headquartered in Paris um, that, that does all the, mostly just keeps statistics and data and so on. And, and they have concluded that the OECD tax rate, a weighted average, even if you weight by relative size of economies, um, is about 25 percent. Okay. So we we would like to see the U.S. rate get get down to 25 percent. Chuck, is that about where you'd like to see it? Yeah, I think that's a realistic goal, and I think also the solution isn't to raise taxes on income. That would be regressive. I mean, by lowering taxes on corporations and keeping taxes uh, holding the line on taxes on income. There'll be more capital in the economy. There'll be more stability in terms of corporations knowing where their money will be in coming months and years, so they'll be more likely to invest. Then there'll be more jobs, which means more income in taxes for the government, by the way. So I don't think that uh, – I think that a low-tax situation, especially in these recessive times, is the best policy. So I congratulate you for what you're doing, Jim. But, well, Chuck, oh, I, thank you. Thank I, you. I, I, I like – Bipartisan effort. I, I like that. Yep. Uh, I like the theory there, but I, I want to ask our guests. Let's assume this happens, and you do reduce the uh, the tax rate to the OECD rate you're talking about. We do get rid of all the all the unnecessary uh, loopholes. Do your have your members given you any kind of a guarantee that they will reinvest in America and they will create jobs here instead of going to the countries that offer the the cheapest rates, the the least regulation, and the most tax exemptions? No, but I mean, take take a company like like Macy's. You know, Macy's is a is a member of the Rate Coalition. Sure, they're going to uh, stay here. Uh, but what about Walmart? And I, and I forgot I, I, I forgot how many employees Macy's has, but I think it's like I mean, it's 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 a as you can imagine, they have you know 800 stores or something. So in, in, under different brand names, um, you know, you 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 the the analogy that economists sometimes use for describe you know world competition is that every country is the equivalent of a football stadium. And, and, and you know, and that, and, that, and I mean, so you know, if, if Cleveland has a football stadium and, and Cincinnati has a football stadium, you know, so why would the football team or the baseball team want to go to one stadium or the other? They, they would will play the game here, not there. And then, and then, of course, the, the country is the equivalent of selling, you know, popcorn and hot dogs and you know, base, hats and so on and flags to the people in the stands. And that's sort of the nature of the economy. And capital is 
you know, mobile now. And and if uh, if Canada cuts its tax rate to uh, ten points below where the U.S. tax rate is, then if you're a company in Ohio or New York or Minnesota or or Washington State, uh, you look, you know, twenty miles across the border and think, gee, was that that's that's a much cheaper place uh, uh, to operate from. So you you have to have some. Uh, uh, optimism that the, the the system that created 130 million jobs, you know, even now uh, in the United States, because this is a good place to do business, uh, uh, you know, will will continue. And but you but then you have to say to yourself, are we doing everything we can to encourage? I mean, uh, uh, all these new businesses and new visionaries. Now, there's, there's a big article in the Wall Street Journal uh, uh, earlier this week. I think Monday. Uh, these two fellows talking about new technologies, you know, nanotechnologies and yeah. 3D printing and, and, and wireless. It was quite exciting to read. And, and for their part, they were kind of optimistic. They said, look, these, these, these technologies were invented in the United States, and, and, and hopefully uh, they'll stay in the United States and, and hire a new uh, you know, crop of American workers. But unfortunately, there's no guarantee. Well, I noticed. And also, I think that constitutionally, it's not really there to for this government to force anybody to do business in the United States any more than it's constitutional to force a person to stay in the United States. I mean, if they well, want to go, they can go. That's true, but I, I notice in looking at your members, all of them with maybe one or two exceptions, their primary business is serving American customers. Many of them are retail, such as Cox Enterprises, Time Warner Cable. There's a few manufacturers like Texas Instruments, but all of these, most, almost all of them are have a stake in continuing to develop an American market. They they aren't the kind of companies that are going to run away to other countries. And I suspect someplace there's a coalition of HP and Apple and General Electric, et cetera, that do all their manufacturing overseas that don't like what you're doing. Am I right? Um, I mean, they're not members, that's for sure. Uh, uh, um, uh, look, there, look, there's lots of different cross currents. You, you certainly put your finger on one. If you're if you're most of your business is overseas, then you're you're less interested in this and more interested, for example, in you know tax repatriation. And you know some of our members would probably like that too if they could. I mean, you know, look, every every business has its own you know set of interests and its own sort of unique uh, 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 circumstances, which is why, from a public policy point of view, uh, you know, we can see how each lobbyist and each you know coalition has created its own little tax break or its own little something and only once in a generation do you do you, do you seem to get the mojo i mean you mentioned the tax cuts of the 60s or the tax cuts of the 80s uh you know it may, may be the case of every 20 years something big out of the tax cut of 1948 uh, uh you know there's, there's, there's been um you know it's, it's got a cycle to it you know when, when the when the problems get worse and the, and the sort of the toxins in the system accumulate uh, there's a desire to kind of clean things up and sort of flush them all out. Uh, it would seem to me, and I think to you know the most voters, that this is one of those times where we better start doing something. And look, I, I'm I'm a fan of infrastructure. I believe in education. I believe in you know encouraging high tech and so on and so on. There's lots of things to do. Uh, the question is, is question for all of us as citizens and voters is is this one of them? Is is making this a more attractive tax climate for American corporations uh, a, a, a good idea? And I think it is. Well, I, I actually think it is, too, although um, uh, we'll, we'll see how it flows forward uh, from here. We are out of time, and I want to thank you very much for being with us, Jim. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you, you, Jim. Thanks for, I'm sorry Lee had to drop off, but she, she was enjoying it as well. 
That's Jim Pinkerton, co-chair of the Rate Coalition, and you can learn more about the Rate Coalition at www.ratecoalition.com. Take a look at their members, take a look at their plan, take a look at what they're doing. Uh, I think Jim is exactly right. We are in that time in America in which things are going to be changing, and they're part of the change. Stay with us. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. We've got one. uh, We're going to take a quick break. one-minute break for our radio stations to identify themselves. Uh, the funny noises you hear are, are very polite uh, conference systems uh, shutting down. You entered the key to exit from there Thank you for using well, our service. So Goodbye. Now. <laughs> Fortunately, that doesn't go over the air, but those of you who listen to us on Block Talk Radio, you can hear it. And, and she's so polite. You know, you can't really complain too much. I, I don't. Hold, hold on a second, gentlemen. I'm going to bring her back. You're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick here on the Cyberstation USA Radio Network and our affiliate stations as well. If you'd like to take part in our conversation this or any other afternoon, 424-675-6806 is the number. FairnessRadio at gmail.com, the email address, and you can send us an email any time of the day or night. But now I'll send it back to our host, Chuck Morris, and Dr. Patrick O'Heffern. Patrick, it's all yours. Thank you, Chuck. Thank you. And That, that was a, a very good conversation, uh, Chuck, and, and I think we need to have a lot more of those conversations. Uh, uh, I, frankly, though, if you look at their membership, uh, every one of those companies, with the possible exception of Texas Instruments and General Dynamics, don't do any overseas manufacturing. They're in the business of servicing American customers, so they're not concerned with, with transfer pricing and taxing foreign income and things like that. So. And I, I do really think that we're going to see them up against the U.S. Chamber of Commerce, which represents many companies that do manufacturing overseas, that are going to want a much, much different kind of um, tax reform. So this is going to be interesting to watch to watch as it develops. Yeah, I'd say so, Patrick. Yeah. So um, I, we'll have to see if we can get some of those uh, those the other interests back on. Um, we've got about five minutes or so, and I wanted to, uh, to talk just a little bit about the uh, the, uh, the election that took place Tuesday night. Uh, were you surprised at all? Not really. No, me neither. Nope. It looks like a, uh, your former governor is moving ahead, although um, apparently the uh, uh, the gambling, the casino king in, in uh, Las Vegas is going to keep... Uh, uh, Gingrich moving too, but uh, I, I wasn't surprised either. I was a little bit surprised that the uh, the margin was as large as it was. Uh, that's that was more than the polls indicated. So I think there's a lot of momentum right. behind Mitt Romney now. Well, I, yeah, I mean, I definitely agree. I mean, they both candidates brought up an issue that we had brought up yesterday on our program with uh, Albert Navarro. Which using the euphemism that Obama's uh, administration is assaulting religious freedom, and specifically what they were talking about was this bill that is it's now been revealed that part of the uh, Obama health bill is going to force Catholic hospitals to provide abortion services. I know that we can't go back to that topic, Patrick, because you won't take a stand on that, at least not morally. Uh, so I feel like I feel awkward even mentioning it because. We don't. We won't know what you think about it since 
that's one moral issue you won't take a stand on, even though you will on others. Well, I, I'm I'm um, uh, not sure about your facts on that. Uh, there was specific language in that bill that was debated up one side and down the other that said none of this, uh, n- none of the funds from this bill will be used for abortion services. Now, has something new come up since then? Yeah, it's not funds being used. It's a mandate that they would require them to do it. It's not a matter of giving money. It's a matter that Catholic hospitals are now going to be required as a matter of public policy, and this is what we talked about with uh, Albert Navarro, to offer uh, the morning after pill and other things that they don't want to do. Oh, that's not abortion, though. Well, according to the Catholic religion, it is. Okay, well. And they don't want to offer that. But now, according to this new law, they're going to have to. That's what's, I mean, it's all going to be examined, as Albert Navarro said by the Supreme Court. But that's what's being described by both Romney and Gingrich as an assault on religious freedom. They have yeah. a religious objection to doing this. They've never done it before. And now suddenly they're going to be required by law. And, in fact, today, I think it was the Bishop of St. Louis, a major bishop, said that we're not going to do it, and we'll have to, even if they put us in jail, we're not going to do it. So it's going to well, be a huge issue. Well, it will be a huge issue. Of course, the, the uh, what will happen there is not jail. It, it's uh, it's fines, and like you say, it is going to Supreme Court. And and I, and I argue there that they're actually not being forced to do it. That the individuals who choose to use that that coverage for an abortion are the ones who are actually doing it. That the uh, the institution which services people who are not of the religion and hires people who are not of the religion is not being forced to do anything that they shouldn't have to do. Well, I don't know. Yesterday you said you agreed with. Uh you had a problem with this, and I, and I think that the language is pretty clear, that it is going to require them to offer the service. And that's an issue that's going to be coming up in the campaign. That's what both Gingrich and, and Romney meant when they said uh, they would defend religious freedom, and that is freedom of conscience in this particular case. Uh, well, my, my problem, if you'll recall, was, first of all, that it can, this is under the, the prevention uh, care uh, sections of the, the bill, and I don't think you can uh, classify pregnancy as a disease, and therefore it should not be part of the prevention uh, part of the bill. And secondly, they're private institutions, and they should uh, be able to offer whatever kind of coverage they want. Now, I realize that, that the bill does require that employers offer comprehensive coverage to uh, to everybody, but to saying that, that pregnancy is a disease is really a stretch, and I, I and I absolutely disagree with that, and I think that the administration's interpretation of that is wrong. Right, and that's what's going to be, that's what, as I said, that's what, what both Gingrich and Romney meant by an assault on the religious freedom of these private institutions. Well, they're, they're, so. they're putting it in terms of assault on religion, freedom, religious freedom. Um, I don't. Uh, I put it in, in terms of just a, a bad interpretation of a section of the law. Um, we, we, we well, both, I think the Catholic we Church views the means, a, this but, is, but we agree on the end. The Catholic Church views views this as part of, part of their scripture. Well, um, they can so do they that. view it as an yeah. assault on that, well, on I, that I section. Well, I view this as the end of the show. <laughs> Uh, that's it for today. We've been listening to the Fairness Doctrine, left, right, and uncensored radio from Cyber Station USA and our affiliates. Don't forget to check out our website, fairnessradio.com, blogs, photos, and petitions uh, on our website. And just good night, everybody. Don't forget to stay tuned on Cyber Station USA for Mike Siegel. Good night, everybody. Good night, Chuck.
for our Blog Talk listeners, uh, we uh, we always end the program about a minute earlier because our radio stations uh, go into a news break right now, and that's why you're seeing uh, a, a slightly different timing on your Blog Talk radio page. So I want to say goodbye to everybody. Don't forget to come in tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to have more. We're going to have in, in, in the first hour talk on the economics in the United States. In the second hour. We're going to get into this, is there really a war on religion, and continue the conversation Chuck and I were having. So, you're listening to Fairness Radio with Chuck and Patrick. Good night, everybody.